Father God, thank you so much for another glorious morning where we can come together and study your word. What a privilege it is. And what a place of humility it is for me. I'm a little bit overwhelmed looking out at how many people are here. It, it just kind of scares me a little bit, but I thank you that they're here and they're hungry, and, and I just uh, have every confidence that you are going to bless them, that you are going to speak to them, that you are going to open their eyes in, in a way that they have never experienced before, to, to see your word and to, to hear your voice through it and to understand it with um, more depth. There, there are just so many layers within your word. We can, we can read it on a surface and, and hear you speak and be blessed by it, or we can sit with it and chew on it and meditate and mark up the text and think through it and answer questions and, and glean even, even more and, and uh, see even more who you are and how, how desperately you want to have a relationship with us. And um, I thank you for that. I know I have to just repent that too often I lose sight of that. And my heart goes cold or, you know, I get busy with the day and I don't even give you any, any peace of my mind because um, I'm so busy doing whatever it is I'm doing. And um, I ask, ask your forgiveness for that. But uh, more than anything, Father, I pray, I pray for me as well as for the people in this class that you would just reveal yourself in a mighty way today, that we would just, your glory would go forth in this room. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to um, be able to be a worthy mouthpiece for you and for your word. We commit our time to you now, Lord, and we thank you and praise you in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Um, another thing real quick, and I'll say it again when we get, when we get there, but Jim is in Japan we should have prayed for him. Jim and Patty, who's usually up here, and some other people from the church are in Japan on a, on a mission trip doing some work there. So he tried to get someone to fill in for him the second hour and um, was not able to do that. So um, I, you know, God has a way of just making provision. Does anybody in here look at the Gospel Coalition or have the Gospel Coalition app on your phone? If you don't, you should. You should, should get the Gospel Coalition app on your phone. They have some wonderful articles and blogs and pieces, and every now and then they have what they call Sermon of the Week. And I've seen those before. I have never, ever listened to one of them. But this one caught my attention. And it says, and the title of it is How to Cure Your Small View of God. And I thought, oh, that kind of goes along with, with Hebrews. And I listened to this guy. Never heard of him before. He's British. He's from Liverpool, although he's preaching at a church in Virginia. And so Steve, I sent the link to Steve, and he's got it queued up. So the second hour, we're going to listen to that. And I even last night did a few notes for you so you have something to kind of look at since you're not getting the video while you listen. But I think you'll really be blessed by it. He is in Ezekiel 1, which is a very odd chapter if you've ever read it, but he does it that he really comes along and ties it to Hebrews, and I think you'll see the connection, and it'll really bless you. So that's an FYI for the second hour, okay? All right, if you want to pull your homework out, and let's go over it. How was it? Did you have a good lesson? Okay, okay. 
All right, if you have questions, be sure and ask them, because I can guarantee you whatever you, th you are afraid to ask, if you will ask it, someone across the room is going to think, I'm glad that person asked that question, because I was thinking the same thing, but I was too afraid to, to ask, so you be sure and do it. A little bit of background. Let's just kind of review from last week just a little bit. What do we know about this book? Who, who, who it is written to? Why it was written? Who was it written to? It was written to Jewish Christians, primarily Jewish Christians. And we know that because of the subject matter. We, we discern from reading the book that these people are persecuted. And because of their persecution, they are, are growing weary, they are growing discouraged, and they are being tempted to go back to Judaism to escape that persecution. Because Judaism at this point in history is not is not a persecuted religion, not in the same way that Christianity was. And so this author sees this problem. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but he sees what's going on, and he cares enough about them, and he apparently has some sort of relationship with them, that he writes this word of exhortation, and he calls it a word of exhortation in 1325, to them to remind them of the truths of who Jesus is and to exhort them don't go back. Don't go back. There's nothing to go back to, and let me tell you why there's nothing to go back to. And not only that, he warns them. We'll look at the first warning next week. The warning of if you go back, do, you cannot go back, but if you go back, here's the warning to you of what will happen if you do that. So the reason I, I want to emphasize that is one thing I want everybody to always remember in, in studying scripture, good hermeneutical practice, is always remember the author's aim. No, oh, that doesn't work. The author's aim. In other words, what is the author's intended meaning? What was he communicating to that particular audience? I've got to understand that first, because this is around 64 AD. We are in 2016. There is a lot of cultural, historical difference between now and then. But more importantly, why did he sit down and write to these particular people, what was he trying to communicate to them? What did he want them to understand? And then from that, once we get that, then we can step back and say, okay, what are the principles that span clear across time that apply to me? What are the principles that cross all cultural, all cultural differences, all span of time and remain true for me today. Now that does take a lot more effort than to just sit down and start reading and say, what does this mean to me? Which is what most Christians do. We just start reading and what does this mean to me? But this is the proper way to do it and the correct way to do it and the way that you're going to get correct application. Does that make sense? Do you all understand what I'm saying? Okay. One of the, and, and to do that, that's why we have you study this way, how we, why we have you study inductively, where you're looking at the text only 
and not at a commentary and not at notes in your Bible, but trying to gather this information yourself first so you see exactly what does the text say itself, not what someone else said about the text. So with that in mind, you had a small little section this week. So you, you should have, everybody should have been able to get through it. It wasn't, it wasn't difficult. But one of the first things you did was to look at keywords. Keywords are important. So what did you see? What were the keywords? He, he who. Okay, so Christ was a key word. Okay. Actually, I'm going to put him over here. We'll put Christ over here. Okay. God. Okay, so God spoke. That's huge, isn't it? And it kept getting, re it, that word, spoke, it's very, very big. Okay, just, just right there, let's think about where these people are. Why would that be, just that phrase, God spoke, be so meaningful to them? What were they going through? Persecution. When you're going through difficult, I mean, we're not experiencing persecution like that in our country. I mean, there are countries that are. You can read about it in in uh, the media, you know, people in Syria and Iran, and Iran um, China even, there are people suffering for their faith. We don't really experience that to that degree here. But what happens when you start going through really difficult times? <coughs> what happens generally? Okay, we start... You, we want to hear from God, don't we? Yeah. Why is this happening to me? Okay. You find out your faith is real. Anyone, anybody want to be really, really honest? What happens sometimes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in that looking at myself and being self-absorbed, what, what kind of questions begin to go through my mind? Where are you, God? What else? Hmm? Yeah, hang on to that. Hang on to that. I'm still, I'm still exploring what happens when, that's okay, when we are really the pressure, the cooker has, has really heated up. Yes, Karen. Okay. Well, we may take the path of least resistance to just get out of it. Mm -hmm. We become very fearful mm -hmm. and, and desperate sometimes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we don't know what to do. Yes, we do become fearful. We do become desperate because we don't know what to do. And I like what Karen says. We may take the path of least resistance. Don't you, have you ever just said, God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? Am I the only one? Okay, thank you. Why is this happening to me? Why have you allowed this to happen to me? Why are you not speaking? How did this, how did my life get here? Because it's, often it doesn't have any, and I'm looking at some of you right now, and I know your situations. It's not because of anything you did. It's because of something somebody else did. 
and yet you're suffering the consequences of it, and it's painful, and it's hard. It's really, really hard. But I think that's our human tendency to begin to question him, to begin to want him to speak and to tell us what to do. And so imagine these people going through this kind of persecution to the point of they've had seizure of their property. Some of them have been put in prison. It says later, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. They're not facing death yet, but it is hard for them. And of course, the natural tendency would be to doubt. What have we gotten ourselves into? Maybe Judaism was better, it was easier, and we were still worshiping God, and we know who God is. Maybe Jesus isn't who he said he was. Let's rethink this, because if we can just consider him in this category and go back to this, then we will have the path of least resistance. Why aren't you speaking, Lord? Why are you silent? So do you see the impact of, that, of exactly what Scott pointed out? God spoke. He spoke. Okay. Other, any other key words? <coughs> Okay, so that word superior kind of comes in, doesn't it? Superior. Mm-hmm. And more, more excellent. Yes, okay, hang on to those descriptions about him. And let's go back to God spoke. How did he speak? When? Okay, long ago, he spoke through, by the prophets, in what way? Okay, many ways and many times. Do they know that? Yeah, they, they do. They do know that because they're well-versed, and we see that in the way the author communicates with them. They're very well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. Because remember, Hebrews has more quotations, more allusions to Old Testament scriptures than any other book of the Bible. So they do know that, and they, they know he has spoken. But let's, let's, just, let's just park there for a minute and think about it. When it says long, in many ways and at many times, what were some of the many ways? I should have put that question in your homework. What were some of the many ways that God spoke? Okay, he spoke in visions. What else? Dreams. Okay, dreams, and I hear you say audibly. Okay. What else? Can you think of other ways? Through miracles. Okay. Okay, signs and wonders. Where did we see signs and wonders? In the Old Testament. Was, that was a pretty good sign. <laughs> yeah, when people sinned and he just opened up the earth and swallowed them whole. Who was that? I can't remember. Cora, I think, or somebody. I think God spoke. Yes, he did. He spoke audibly. Can you think of some other ways? Through animals. 
We had a donkey. A huge fish, through, so he spoke through circumstances. Okay, on the stones, he wrote on those stones, and so he wrote his words, which is a form of speaking, on the stones that Moses brought down from the mountain. Okay, manna. Somebody? Water through the rock. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, through the plagues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He spoke through various prophets, didn't he? Isaiah, Jeremiah. Malachi, Hosea, Habakkuk. He spoke directly to Habakkuk when Habakkuk questions him about where are you? I'm looking out at the sin of my people, and you're not, you're not doing anything about it. And God says, speaks directly to him. You will be amazed at what I'm about to do. Of course, it wasn't the answer Habakkuk wanted. That's one of my favorite books. So I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to come in and take over and wreak havoc. And, and Habakkuk says, whoa, that's not quite what I had in mind. <laughs> but God's going to use them in judgment to bring Israel to their knees so that then they will turn back to him. So he's used judgment as a way of speaking. He's used captivity as a way of speaking. But he's spoken through all of these various ways, through these various people, to show forth who he is. And each of these was a a fragment. Do you see that? And I think one of the other versions says in various ways rather than many ways. But he was each, each of these ways was, was just, they were progressive. Number one, it was progressive. Each time he spoke, he was adding more and more revelation of who he was and what he was doing and how he was working his plan of salvation. But none of these ways was complete. They were piecemeal. Each one, do you see that? Each of these were pieces of the whole of what he was trying to say to them, progressively revealing who he was. What is now, long ago, by the prophets in many ways, what's the contrast there in verse 1 and 2? But, that little word but, but. But what? Okay. So long ago, but in the last days, what has he done? Okay. He has spoken. Now God has spoken by his son, Jesus Christ. And what does he mean? I'm not following your questions exactly if you're looking through your homework <laughs> trying to figure out where I am. What does he mean by the last days? Hmm? The present time? Yes? Can we get a little more specific about it? 
I would say from the time he was born, when he, when he became flesh and walked and was, came to earth from that point, ushered in the last days, and from then until he returns, yes. So we're, we, they were in the last days, we were in the last days. But not only that, can I add another dimension to it, what the last days are? The last days are the fulfillment of everything he spoke here. Because what, what were they speaking? They were speaking primarily, if you go back and trace the whole meta-narrative of Scripture, they were speaking about what was to come, and that was Jesus Christ. Weren't the prophets? They were prophesying to the people of their time, but woven throughout their prophecies were prophecies about Christ's coming and who he would be because he was the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan of salvation in the new covenant. So he has spoken now in his son, and now we can talk about what we learn about him. But before we do, do you see, does he plan to speak again? Why? Hmm? He's done. Why is he done? Okay, because he's given us all we need to know in whom? In Christ, you see, this was piecemeal. Pieces progressively revealed about who he was, who Jesus was going to be. This, what he spoke over here, this is whole. It's complete. What do you mean by that? <laughs> bits and pieces of reveal. Yeah, yeah. It's bits and pieces. It's piecemeal. It's bits and pieces. I'm giving you a little bit here, a little bit here, a, a visual here. I'm, I'm giving um, a progressive revelation, you know, the law, the giving the Davidic covenant. Each thing was unveiling more. Those of you all that did covenant, you, you see that. You, you see how it, with each covenant that God made with man, he was re progressively revealing more and more and more to bring us up to his son, which is the final fulfillment of everything he was doing. Everything was being played out over time exactly as he intended it on his time, on his exact time frame. Make sense? Okay. So this word is whole, is complete, it is final because there's nothing else to say. All, everything over here that was pointing here has come. This is my final word, folks. And all of it, all of it is contained in a person, in Jesus Christ, my son. And now's when he begins to point these people, exactly what I said when we're asking the questions, what do we tend to do and what were they doing when, th when times get hard? I like what Jennifer said, we focus on us. And we begin to get self-absorbed. We, we turn into self-pity and we focus on our circumstances or we're a hamster in a wheel trying to figure out how to get out of it how to fix it. And he says, no, I want you to turn your eyes upon Jesus and I want you to focus in on him because he is the anchor of your soul and he is the one that's going to hold you through this. You want to stand through this? You want to be victorious to this? You don't run back. You run forward to him. So what does he say about him? We already, we already saw he's superior to the angels which will be our lesson next week. 
because he has a more excellent name. But some of you all were wanting to jump ahead. Catherine, what does he say? Do you remember what you said a little bit ago? Oh, heir and inheritance. Okay, so he is called the heir. Jesus is heir of what? All. What things? He is the heir of all things. What else is he? Okay, somebody said creator. How do I know he's creator? What does it say about him? It was created through him, by him. He is the creator. If he is creator, what's the natural conclusion of who he is then? He is God, isn't he? Isn't that the implication? Is that he himself is God, if he is creator. Okay. What else does it say about him? Okay, he is the radiant of God's glory. What does that mean? I gave you the Greek words for that because I wanted you to see, um, those of you all that are not familiar, the, the text was originally written in the Koine Greek, and Greek is a much, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a more expressive, more deep, descriptive language than ours. Uh, for example, we have one word for love. They have like four words for love, and each one um, describes a completely different level of what love is. You know, there's agape, there's eros, there's phileo. Phileo is uh, love of the brother, and agape is that, that um, unconditional love that, that God poured out on us through his son. Eros would be the sexual love. And so when those words are used, they, they knew what we're talking about. Um, and they might, it's hard to translate. If you know anything about translation, translating one language to another, is sometimes there's words in one language that you just can't quite cross over. You, it, at best, you can kind of describe what they're trying to say, but there isn't an equivalent word. And sometimes it's helpful to, to use some Greek study tools or pick up a good commentary that'll tell you, this is what this word means. It'll give you greater level of depth of meaning of what's being said. So that I understand what it means. He's the radiance of God's glory. So I gave that to you. What could you discern from that of what does it mean? He's the radiance of God's glory. He's not what, Alex? He's not a reflection. And that's important, isn't it? Because what is a reflection? What's the difference between a reflection and something that's a shining forth? It's, it's kind of the opposite, isn't it, Joy? Yeah. Somebody said something over here. It emits light. It, emits light. it, is, it is the source. Yes. So if he's the, it's like the sun. Are the rays of the sun part of the sun? Not Jesus, the sun, the sun and the planetary thing. Yes, they are. The sun is emitting its rays out. And that, that is an extension of the sun. So that's, that's a lot of what we're talking about. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's not merely, he's not a reflection. He is a shining forth 
because he is part of the Trinity. He, he is, I've got a fly in here. He is God. Do you see what I'm saying? So that when it says, when we were talking about creator being, that implies he's God. When we say radiance of God's glory, that also implies he is God because he's not merely a reflection. He's the actual rays shining forth from the source. And then it says he is the exact imprint of his nature. What does that mean? Jesus is the exact, does it say imprint or representation? Depends on which version. Imprint. Okay. It's an image. But we need a little more depth to that. Okay. The, the word looks like character even in the Greek, doesn't it? Did you all see that? Character. Okay, okay, that's a good description. Somebody else? Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father are one, okay. Right, he's the fleshly image of God. Yeah, it's an exact imprint of the, of the original. That, that's kind of what the word means. Uh, a representation, ex express image, the image implies, it implies the image impressed as corresponding with the original, kind of like when you make a die and you, and you print something from it. It is the exact imprint of what was the original mold, and, that, and it, he is because he is God. Does that make sense? And I should have put in there what the word nature means. It is hypostasis. It's the very essence. To the exact nature is the very essence of who God is. So he is the, the exact image, the very imprint, the expression of God's nature. And somebody in here said he's, he's just God in physical form. And that's true. That's an apt description of him. Yes. What are, can you read that loudly? Yeah. Yes, Colossians 2, what verse? 2, 9, and 10. Christ is the fullness of God in bodily form. Yes, exactly. <coughs> Anything else you all want to add to this? Oh, yes, there's more. I was getting ready to jump over to John and Colossians, but we have much more. What else do you learn about Christ? He upholds the universe. How? Did you meditate on that a little bit? Upholds the universe by the, there's that spoken thing, word of his power. 
That is amazing. If you, if you read any kind of science stuff, um, which I really don't, <laughs> but if you do, just how large the galaxy is, and every now and then they'll, they'll have something on the nightly news about something they've discovered <coughs> as they sent these satellites out, and, and just how vast and how great, or I saw something on TV recently about the, oh, what is it called? I've lost my mind. Uh, super something. Where they found, they're always finding, no, 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 it's, um, yeah, he does. He does, Louis Giglio does. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue, but it's, uh, um, it's this huge thing that produces power, and I can't think of what the name is, but, but even just what, they're finding even smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> particles within um, our created universe that are holding everything together. It's like they, they keep finding more. And of course, it's all mystifying these unbelieving scientists. But we know who's holding it all together, don't we? And, and that is amazing to me. And it makes me think back to Genesis. What, what, did, what happened in the very first chapter of Genesis? Who? God spoke. God spoke. And it came into being, the power of his word. He spoke, and it came into being. And who was there with him creating? We know that from here, and we'll see it in Colossians in a minute. Who was with him? Christ. Jesus was there as part of the creation, speaking just their words. They just spoke, and it came into being. I can't wrap my head around that, the type of, of power that is. And I can read all these scientific explanations for what's holding everything together, but I know who is holding it all together, and how he is. He says he holds it, the universe, by the word of his power. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's like Atlas kind of, you know, hanging on to the earth on his back. It's, it's, mu it's so much bigger and greater than that. Just by the word is he holding it all together. He could speak and it not hold together would be the flip side of that. What else about Jesus? Upholds the universe by the word of his power, but then when we move from all this cosmic activity and the relationship that he has with the Father, what's the next thing that's said about him? Well, no, that's John, right? I'm still in Hebrews. Hang on, I'm still in Hebrews. Hang on, Hebrews. What has he done? What did he do before he sat down at the right hand? Okay, he made purification... For our sins. And then, after he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of God. Can you see that flow of thought, though? Here's all this. Here's, here he is, heir of all things, creator, the very, very being of, he is God. He is who God is because he is God. He's the radiance of God in the flesh, but then in upholding of the universe, and yet God made purification for sins, for us. You see him now in relationship to us. And then he, because his work was complete, and we'll see this unfold in greater detail in the book of Hebrews, because his word was complete, he sat down. And that's where he sits now. His present work, and that's what we'll see as we un unfold more and more of Hebrews, 
and I, I think I told you that last week, we tend to focus on, on his past work, what he did in making that purification, or his future work, what will happen when he returns again. And we, we lose sight of what his present work is, that he's sitting on the throne at the right hand, having made that once-for-all sacrifice for us in making provision for our sin, always interceding on our behalf. And that is amazing. Can you see why I, I put that quote in there at the end of your lesson about the opening sentences of the letter are designed to bring them and us to our knees? Only then can we hope to stand firmly on our feet. These truths, if you think about them, they do. They make you want to just fall down and worship him. And they, and they really do unfold. I love that old hymn that we don't sing anymore. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And they do. It's hard to do in practice when, when times are tough. It's hard to do that. But if we make ourselves do it, get the community around us and will help us do it, then the, earth, the things of earth do grow strangely dim. They really do. Questions, comments? Okay, now let's look at these cross-references in John and in Colossians and see how they fit with what Hebrews is saying. What does it say in John? Well, that's true. I don't know how to answer that. I was going to see that as the beginning of when God spoke. Yeah. Like our beginning. They were already there and at our beginning. The beginning of the world. That's kind of how I would think because he's. They were already there. It's like in the beginning was like they were already there. Yeah. Yeah, Genesis, yeah, in the beginning, Genesis 1-1. I agree, that's what I was going to say before you all said it, but you said it really well. Yeah, in the beginning, when we began, because God is eternal, there is no beginning, there is no end, which is one of those truths we can't wrap our head around. I can't, yeah. So, in the beginning, he was with God, and what else? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. Doesn't that reinforce it reinforces all this, doesn't it? The Word, which he's going to tell us is Jesus, is God. Okay? What else? How is what is said in Hebrews reinforced here? Because what does it say next about him? It talks about creation. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made. And then as you read on down, what's important? The word what? The word was what? Life. What, Joy? And the life was the light of men. What else did the word do? Yes. Uh-huh, which refers back to the radiance. Mm-hmm. Is it in verse 14? I think it's 14. And the word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us. There's that. He put skin on so that we could see him. Do you see in, in some of these two just the immense desire of God to communicate with us, to have relationship with us? That's, that's this, um, what, what Scott said in the beginning, and, he, and you said it with such emphasis, Scott, I really like that. God spoke. God spoke. He has always spoken. He has never been silent. He spoke fully in his son, and in his son he is still speaking to us. He's not giving any new word, but it's always a fresh word for us. God, he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And not only that, no one ever has seen God, the only God who is the Father. He has made the Father known. Jesus has made the Father known in the flesh. That is an amazing, amen, right? Amen. Okay, what about Colossians? How does Colossians, again, the wording a little bit different, but reinforces everything we're saying? Let me say one more thing about John. Yeah. And there's other places, not only become the right to be children of God, but fellow heirs with him. He is heir of all things, and we are fellow heirs with him. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Colossians. Any further insights? He's the image of the invisible God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see that again? By him all things were created, through him and for him. Again, a third time, he is the creator. And the creator, to create, you have to be God. Before him all things, and in him all things hold together. They hold together, again, that by the, upholds the universe by the word of his power. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then you see he made peace by the blood of his cross. There's that making purifications for our sins. Do you see how all those tie together? What, what John has written, what Paul has written, what this anonymous author has written are all saying the same thing about who he is. Which, which really, which leads, leads me right to that next question, number seven. Because this is, you want a modern day application. Here's a modern day application. Our society has become more and more pluralistic. Our society does not like the peculiarity of Jesus. They do not like being told he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. They don't like that truth. Instead, they want to say, All paths are equal ways to God, as long as we're sincerely seeking God. What's wrong with that? Everything. What, Joy? There's only one way. Okay. Other thoughts? Do you know what some of these other religions believe about Jesus? Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Well, we live like it sometimes, don't we? It's an illusion, but we do it. I do it. Anybody know what Islam believes about Jesus? He's a prophet. They esteem him, but he's not God. Jehovah Witnesses, do you know what they believe? He's not a prophet. He's a created being. Mm -hmm. They take literally those verses, firstborn, to mean that he was created. So he is not God. He is a created being. He has high relevance. He is the son, but he is not God. I don't know who believes that. I, I know that, the, that um, Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons don't believe in his deity, that he is God. Now, Mormons will use um, language that sounds as if they're saying the same thing we are. And it's... You, yeah, you have, you have to dig really deep in their literature to finally find what they really believe. It's there, though. I've done it. I've gotten on their websites and skimmed around, and I found it. But it's several pages in. And you've got to be pretty knowledgeable of, of your own um, faith to figure it out, what they're really saying. But they're not coming. They're not on, we're not on the same playing field, as, as good as it sounds. And we're definitely not on the same playing field with Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, Islam just believes he is a prophet, he is not God. They will even say, it says in the Quran, that he was born of a virgin. And how they can believe that and not believe that he's God, it makes no sense, but they don't. And I like what you said, Diane. Nobody else has, like, God made flesh. They just have some esteemed prophet, or they're just worshiping a God up here somewhere. So there, all of these verses, all of these things about him show the uniqueness of who Christ is and that if this, if, if this is true, there is no other way. There can't be any other way or none of this is true. It's really as simple as that. Well, I don't think they believe it's the inspired word of God. I think it goes to there. That's kind of where the, that's kind of the starting point I've seen, is, is if, if you start denying that this is God's inspired word, that it is an errant, then you can go a whole lot of different places. And you can just pick and choose. You can cherry pick out of scripture what sounds good and what doesn't. And you can become the um, arbitrator and the judge of what are God's words and what are not. And people have done that. The whole Jesus seminar, if you've heard of that, that happened, oh, I don't know how many years ago, maybe as long as 20 years ago, these scholars, theologians, got together and went through the scriptures and decided what Jesus really said and what he really didn't. And basically, he didn't say very much. And what their criteria is, I don't know. But um, made it very easy to live how you want. When you say, well, he, this, you know, writers just made this up. This isn't really what he said. These weren't his words. Mm -hmm. Good questions. Other thoughts? It's, gonna, it's getting harder to, to live in that, in that world. And in that respect, we, we have a, you know, where the, the, the principles and the circumstances crossing over from 
you know, first century to us. You know, the heat, the rub is getting a little rubbier. Not so much in Stillwater, but get out of Oklahoma. Go up on the East Coast, go out West, and you're going to find lots of people that don't think like you and don't believe like you and will bristle at the thought of Jesus is the only way and accuse you of being a, a hater, that's a common thing, a hater or a bigot or um, judgmental because you, you hold to these views of who, who Jesus is and who God is and that this, this is what salvation is. So the challenge is on for us to know this, to think deeper and to be prepared to give an answer for why we believe what we believe. Okay. Number eight, which description of Christ most stood out to you? Did anyone, did anyone, as you sat there and looked through this this week, you just went, wow. That stood out to you? Okay. Can you elaborate any? Anybody else want to share? I wrote who made where it says purification for our sins, which is the essence of the gospel, because he didn't institute a religion to make things worse. He just said there's a God. He did. Mm-hmm. And hang on, to, hang on. So that's that's the difference in all the other religions too. They got to work. Have you heard Jim talk about Taysir that lives with him and how Taysir, because he's Muslim, never. He doesn't ever, he has no assurance that at the, end, at the end of his life he will have enough good works to, to enter into heaven. You know, I mean, hmm? Oh, yes, the Mormons. I, I remember sitting in a, a group one time years ago and somebody said something about how nice they were and what good people. And Mark Tower, if you know Mark Tower, was sitting there and he goes, well, of course they are. They have to. <laughs> They're working for their salvation. They have to be nice to you. <laughs> and it, and so, Nark doesn't mince words. But you know what? He spoke, the, but it's true. It is true. They have, they, of course they are. They have to. They're working. It's tick off the list. Yeah, Phyllis. I really like what you said, Courtney, because it makes me realize how small I am. Because uh, I'll just confess right here, I'm very bad about the world revolves around Nancy. <laughs> and it's about me. And um, it is not about me. And I'm barely a speck on the map in God's economy. 
And that's something I need to be reminded of all the time. Okay, in our remaining minutes, I want to I want to add I'm real curious how you all answer this last question. Whose voice has the greatest influence in your life? Genevieve and I were talking about this yesterday. I'm going to tell you why cuz I don't think anybody's going to answer it the way But go ahead and tell me, whose voice has the greatest influence in your life? I just kind of realized the more I know about my parents. Your parents? Okay. And it's kind of helped me to maybe take some pictures of my favorite stuff that I do. Kind of kind of learn to stay in my own. Yeah. Your parents can be negative and positive, can't it? Yeah. And that's what was going to help. Yes. Parents have a huge in influence on our lives, which is scary for those of us as parents. What we can do to our children. Hey, I have one that's a clinical psychologist. That's even scarier. <laughs> she likes to set rules and parameters for our conversations. <laughs> okay, mom, here's the rules. And if I accidentally said, Mom, that was not, you can't do that. <laughs> All right. What voice? What can voice is, watch? huh? Can we go <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I hope she never listens to this. I love that girl, and we have a great relationship, but it's kind of, she likes to control everything, too. She's. <laughs> no, I'm really not like, I'm really, no, we're very, we're different in a lot of ways. We really are. She's a better version of me, actually, because she doesn't have, she didn't grow up in a dysfunctional family. She grew up in a loving home, so she's a lot more, both of my kids are, have a much, um, uh, they're much more emotionally healthy. They had a better start from the get-go than, than I did, and they recognize it, and they like to say, Mom, that's your problem. That's, we really don't struggle with that. <laughs> That's your issues. So, yeah, my son has a master's in counseling too, although he doesn't practice it. So <laughs> I don't know what that says about us. Okay, what voice? We're running out of time. What voice has the greatest influence in your life? I said, I want to say the Holy Spirit, whose voice does direct me daily towards God. However, honestly, my own voice often interrupts and sometimes drowns out the Holy Spirit, which is always sometimes not necessarily away from God, but not toward discerning what is best. It might be a good thing, but it might not be the best thing. Jennifer gets the gold star. <laughs> and I drove the furthest. Because <laughs> Genevieve answered exactly how I thought she would. Well, God, it's God has the greatest influence. And I think we wait, all wait. want to. I said that's who I want to have. Okay. Okay. I'm and putting words in your mouth. Okay. But I do know that we all have self-talk all of the time, and it's learning to direct that self-talk in healthy ways mm -hmm. that makes the difference. And if we can speak God, mm -hmm. then it helps as well. Right. I, I, I mean, and what you said is right on, but I think if you even look back, what is it? It's your self-talk of what your parents told you. 
if we're honest with ourselves, what is the voice that is most influencing us? It's my own voice in my own head, saddled with my, my lust, my desires, the, the stuff my parents told me, the stuff my parents did told, tell me, the bully that bullied me at school, you know, the first husband that was abusive, whatever it is in your life. That's the voice that is bombarding our heads all the time. And even when it's spiritual warfare and it's Satan in there planning, he's still taking your thoughts and just making you remember them. So I, 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 I actually kind of lifted that question from somebody else's study, I thought, and reworded it because I thought, wow, that immediately spoke to me and tied into God spoke, God spoke, God spoke, God spoke, God is speaking. And that's what we need to hear. And what we need to do is turn our eyes upon Jesus. But what's happening is we're in a hamster wheel in our head with our own voice, if we're honest with ourselves. And I'm guessing that the men do that just as much as the women. Would I be correct? Okay. Thank you. In a different way, but you do it. And, and, and whose voice do we need to be looking at? Listening to his voice. His voice. What does his voice say? And I would encourage you when you get stuck in the hamster wheel, that's where community comes in. And you do pick up the phone and you make that confession and say, I'm stuck in the hamster wheel. Here are the thoughts that are going on in my head. And you let someone be the voice of God in your life to say, that's not true. That's not true. Right, Lynn? I thank you, thank you, Jesus, for Lynn, because Lynn knows certain times when warfare is going to get me, and, and I'll call, but I don't even have to say anything. She just sees Nancy on the You're experiencing warfare again, aren't you? So, yes, Norma. I've heard it. Yes. That's one of the arguments for, um, it's one of many arguments in defense of homosexuality is that Jesus never addresses it. Him directly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are Paul's thoughts, not Jesus' thoughts. Yes, he does. Yeah. But that all goes back to that, you know, the uh, authority of the Word of God. If God, it's God's words of His authority, then you know that Paul has authority because he's spokesman. God used him and moved him, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to speak His words. But if you don't believe that, then you can start. You can start picking and choosing what is God's word and what is not. Today's episode of TGC's Word of the Week is sponsored by the Lilly Endowment Grant at Beeson Divinity School an evangelical interdenominational theological school in Birmingham, Alabama, training pastors who can preach. www.beesondivinity.com I'm concerned that our view of God is way too small and our view of ourselves is just way too big. 
And the only cure for that is to get a clearer, truer glimpse of God. Because God is big. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, A Glimpse of God's Glory, was preached by Mike Jones at Sterling Park Baptist Church in Sterling, Virginia on July the 17th, 2016. The text is Ezekiel chapter 1. The sermon will begin after I've read the text. Ezekiel chapter 1. In the thirtieth year in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went and their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them, and when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. 
and under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse of their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Have you ever had one of those moments where you were in the presence of something big? I'll never forget the time when I first saw the Eiffel Tower. You know, my legs just went to jelly looking up at it. Or the time I saw Mount Rainier in Washington. I just didn't have a category for things that size. Or the first time I met Will Glasser. <laughs> I mean, even this week when we were at King's Dominion with the youth, I remember seeing the Intimidator for the first time. And I'm not going to lie, I was intimidated. You know, there's something about being in the presence of something big that just makes us feel small. And this week we continue our two-part series on the bigness of God. And last week I said that I was concerned I'm concerned that our view of God is way too small and our view of ourselves is just way too big. And the only cure for that is to get a clearer, truer glimpse of God. Because God is big. Bigger than we realize. And only by catching a glimpse of his bigness will we have a right view of ourselves. And so to get a glimpse of God's bigness. We're considering two visions of God in the Bible. So last week we saw Isaiah's vision, and this week we're going to be considering Ezekiel's vision. But before we do that, let me just ask you, have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever felt let down by God in the past? Or maybe even just today you feel disappointed with God? Maybe your move to Northern Virginia has not been all you thought it would be. Maybe your future isn't headed in the direction that you would like. Maybe your marriage is experiencing difficulties and things just seem to be getting worse. Maybe you've prayed for the salvation of a loved one, but God just doesn't seem to be listening. Or maybe you've had a bad church experience, or three 
You know, there are lots of reasons we might feel disappointment towards God. Our health, our singleness, our finances, our grief, our family situation. And maybe this disappointment is compounded by the fact that God just seems so distant from it all. Well, if on some level that is you this morning, then Ezekiel 1 has much to say to you. Because we're actually not the first ones in history to feel disappointed with God. So even if you just look down at verse 1 there, you'll see that, we'll see the context of this passage. Because Ezekiel tells us that he was among the exiles. You see, Ezekiel was amongst the people who'd been forcibly removed from their homes and exiled to a foreign land. Specifically, they were by the Kibar Canal, which was part of the Babylonian Empire. Now, the Babylonian army had basically ransacked Jerusalem and they'd taken 8,000 Judeans into exile. And we're not going to look at it now, but you can see this event in 2 Kings 24. So the people alongside that river, they had no doubt seen some terrible sights. They'd seen friends and family put to the sword. They'd seen people starving on the streets. They'd seen their homes burned, the places where they grew up destroyed. But to really understand the weight of exile, we need to understand the spiritual component. Because to be exiled was more than just being banished from your home. To be exiled was proof of divine rejection. It was to be cursed by God. It was a sign of God's judgment. You see, God's temple was in Jerusalem. And it was in that temple where God met with his people. So to be exiled was to be banished from God's temple presence. So here we find the people no doubt disappointed with God. So just imagine the questions they must have had as they sat and wept by the rivers of Babylon. Why did God let this happen? I mean, has God rejected us? How can God be good if he allowed this to happen? And if he is good, how can he be powerful? Maybe you've asked similar questions. And even Ezekiel himself must have felt this disappointment. After all, he was one of the godly ones. I mean, some of the people of Judah certainly deserved to be exiled. They were extremely wicked. But not everyone. Not Ezekiel. I mean, verse 1 starts off in the 30th year, which is probably Ezekiel's age. And if you look in verse 2, we see Ezekiel was a priest. And so this would have been the year that he entered temple ministry. In other words, this would have been the year that Ezekiel had dreamt of his whole life. You know, some of us dream about that day when we can finally drive without our parents. Some of us dream of that day when we get to walk down the aisle. I always dreamt of the day when I could get to go to Disney World. And just like Disney promised, my wish came true. Well, the day Ezekiel dreamt about was the day he entered the temple as a priest. This is what he spent countless hours dreaming, working, studying towards. But here he is in the fifth year of exile and all of his dreams have been shattered. 
talk about disappointment. And it's in the midst of this disappointment with God, feeling like God doesn't care, feeling like God's abandoned them, feeling like God's asleep at the wheel or he's just simply dead. It's in the midst of all of this that we read, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, before we jump into this vision, it might be helpful to make a couple of remarks. So last weekend, I sat on my couch. I opened up Ezekiel 1 and I thought, just have a little, little read, get familiar with the passage, spend some time with the Lord. And after I read it, I closed my Bible and I said, I literally have no idea what that's about. <laughs> Why did I choose this passage? And maybe you experience similar confusion as Godfrey read for us earlier. Because at first glance, Ezekiel 1 can seem a little confusing, a little alien, especially to us modern readers. I mean, what's going on here? What's with all the creatures, with all the faces? What's with all the fire and lightning? What's with all the wheels and the wheels within the wheels and the eyes on the wheels within the wheels? I mean, what, why does God reveal himself in this strange way? Well, I think two things are helpful to keep in, in consideration. Two things about God that help us to understand why he reveals himself in this way. Firstly, God is invisible. God is invisible. So God is not a physical being like us. God is a spiritual being. For example, John tells us in his gospel, no one has ever seen God. And that's because as Paul tells us in Colossians 1, God is the invisible God. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul talks about God this way. He says, God who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. We can't see God because he has no physical form. So in the Bible, the invisible God, he shows himself using visible things. And these visible things help us to see what the invisible God is like. So God's invisible. Secondly, God is different. He is different from anything that exists, totally other, utterly unique. There is nothing in creation that fully captures what God is like. You know, I think many people think of God like he's some sort of superhuman you know, he's kind of like us, but he's a little bit more powerful, a little bit more intelligent, maybe a little more good and loving. But God is in a totally, totally other category of existence to us. So God is not simply the highest being in the food chain. So we mustn't think of God as the highest in like an ascending order of things. So, you know, starting with, let's say, a fish and then a bird, and then a lion, and then a man, and then an angel, and then God's like at the top of all these things. You see, God is as high above an angel as he is an ant. Because the gulf that separates an angel and an ant is finite. 
But the gulf that separates God from an angel is infinite. You see, the ant and the angel are both created things. They both belong in this category of things that are not God. But God stands alone as high and lifted up. He's in a category of his own. Now, theologians call this God's transcendence. And if that hurts your brain a little bit this morning, that's a good thing. Now, I touched on this last week, but it just bears repeating. God is too immense for our imagination. He's too complex for our comprehension. He's too infinite for our intellects. So God is invisible and he's utterly different or transcendent. Now, if you put these two things together, the question arises, then how can we know anything about God? I mean, if we can't see him, and if he's different from anything in creation, how can we know what he's like? And the answer is that God, in his kindness, reveals himself to us in ways that we can understand So God shows himself to us using things that we can understand to teach us things about himself that we cannot understand. So it's like when when you get on your knees and try to explain something to a small child. You know, you might use simple language and, and concepts in a way that you wouldn't need to with a doctor or a lawyer. And in the same way, God accommodates himself to us. And this is the only way the infinite God could effectively communicate truths about himself to finite humans. Again, this just reminds us that God is big, huge, immense, and we are small. So small that he needs to effectively baby talk with us. Now, this is helpful when we think about Ezekiel's vision. Because I don't know if you noticed this, as Mike read earlier, but did you see how many times the word like or likeness appeared? So look at verse 4. Ezekiel saw the likeness of four living creatures. that each had a human likeness. Or just look at verse 13. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro. Verse 24, and when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And even in verse 26, Ezekiel sees something like a throne, with someone like a human sitting on it. In other words, this vision is dominated by language of analogy. Ezekiel's just at a loss for words that adequately describe what he's seeing. And he's exhausting his vocabulary, using familiar ideas and concepts to just try and describe the indescribable. And God reveals himself to Ezekiel in this spectacular way. And as he does that, he reveals true things about himself. But even though God reveals true things about himself, he doesn't reveal everything about himself. So we can know true things about God without knowing everything there is to know about God. 
So God shows himself to be like this or like that. But he's so big, so immense, so majestic that we only get a glimpse of his glory. But it's a true glimpse. And it's enough to make Ezekiel fall on his face. So let's jump into the vision. My plan today is to simply walk through what Ezekiel saw. And we're not going to hit every detail in the passage because we'd be here all week. But hopefully we'll get the big idea of what God is trying to communicate. So remember the context here. Okay, Think of the exiles. Think about what they and Ezekiel must have been wondering you know, is God dead? Is he, is he asleep? Is he powerless? And then look at verse 4, because we see God literally exploding onto the scene. There's this stormy wind coming out of the north, and Ezekiel sees this great cloud with dazzling brightness all around it. And this brightness is caused by fire that is flashing forth continually. And from the midst of this blazing, fiery, glorious cloud comes what looks like four living creatures in verse 5. And Ezekiel describes what they look like in the following verses. So we see they have a human likeness. But at least unlike any human I've seen before, they each have four faces and four wings. And then in verse 9, we see that their wings touched one another as they move forward without turning. So maybe just try, if you can do this, to imagine a square of four creatures that are stood with their wings touching one another as they move forward. And then in verse 10, Ezekiel describes these four faces to us. So each creature has the face of a lion, a human, an ox, and an eagle. Now this seems very strange to us in modern day Northern Virginia, But actually, in Ezekiel's day, this would have made a lot of sense. So the lion was the highest wild animal, renowned for strength and ferocity and courage. And the lion also served as a symbol for royalty. The eagle was the fastest and most magnificent of birds. The ox was the most valuable domestic animal. It also functioned as a symbol of Fertility, new life, and divinity. And lastly, the human was the highest of created beings. So created in God's image, humans were invested with the most dignity and the most worth. So put together, they embody all the highest attributes of creation. And did you notice the repetition of the number four? Now, in ancient times, the number four often represented the four corners of the earth, kind of like, the, the, like a compass. In other words, these four living creatures with four faces represented the entirety of creation. And just, did you notice what, that they're moving? They're always moving. There's constant motion in this vision. And as they move, we see in verse 13 that their appearance was like, burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. So it seems that these creatures are moving at light speed to every corner of the earth. 
and forth, back and forth, constantly moving. And we see how they're moving in verses 15 to 21. So each creature had a wheel. And these weren't any old wheels that you could pick up at Costco. These are glorious. So verse 16, their appearance was the, like the gleaming of beryl. Verse 18, their rims were tall and awesome. Furthermore, they had the same likeness being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. Now, it's difficult to envision what exactly Ezekiel saw here. I think most people seem to think that these wheels kind of intersected to create like a dome-like shape. Who knows? But whatever a wheel within a wheel looked like, actually their function's very clear in verse 17. So in verse 17, we see the wheels enabled the living creatures to move in all directions without turning. So it seems that Ezekiel is picturing some sort of divine chariot. So ancient kings would often ride into battle on a chariot. And this divine chariot has the ability to move everywhere without resistance, freely and effortlessly at lightning speed all over creation. And the noise that is coming from this chariot is deafening. So look at verse 24. I'm sure this stuck out to you when Mike read. On one level, it's like the sound of many waters. So if you've ever been underneath a great waterfall or if you've visited Great Falls on the Potomac River, you'd have gotten a sense of the power and the awesomeness of this sound. But on another level, it's also like the sound of the Almighty. Now again, commentators aren't exactly sure what this means. But it's possible that Ezekiel is thinking about Mount Sinai, where God's presence was accompanied by thunder. And alongside the great cloud of verse 4, I think this makes sense. So Ezekiel hears the sound of rushing waters and claps of thunder. Yet on another level, it sounds like the march of an army. Now, I've never heard the sound of a real army marching but I, I just like to think of Lord of the Rings, you know, where the, the armies of Mordor are marching towards Helm's Deep, and it's frightening, it's terrifying. And so there's this indescribable, terrifying noise coming from God's chariot. And then in verse 22, for the first time in the vision, Ezekiel dares to look up. And above the creatures, above this chariot, was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal. And this expanse seems to be some sort of transparent platform. And on this platform, in verse 26, Ezekiel sees the likeness of a throne. And this throne is also glorious. It's so glorious, it's not quite a throne, it's like a throne. And it reminds Ezekiel of sapphire, which was one of the most precious stones at the time. But it's the one seated on the throne that Ezekiel is most impressed with. On the throne is someone who has the likeness of a human. And he's certainly a king. He has the form of a human, but he's no ordinary human. 
And this king is even more glorious than the throne. We see in verse 27 that he shined like gleaming metal and seems to be surrounded by brightness and fire all around. The brightness and colors were rainbow-like. Now, if we just step back a second out of all this detail, what Ezekiel seems to see in this vision should become clear to us. He sees a divine chariot explode out of the cloud. And on this divine chariot is a glorious king seated on his throne. And as Ezekiel stands in awe of this king, this divine warrior on his divine chariot, in verse 28, he realizes what he's seeing. And he says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. I mean, even here, just notice Ezekiel is just grasping for words, isn't he? It's like this was the appearance of the likeness of God's glory. Ezekiel's view of God just got a whole lot bigger. And he's completely overwhelmed. So here's what we've seen. God is on his chariot throne. And he's not static, but he's on the move. And just look where he's moving Amazingly, he is going into exile with his people. Remember, to be exiled was to be cut off from God, cursed by God. But here God is, freely and graciously going into exile for the very people who had rejected him. Just think about what this would have meant to Ezekiel. Think about the exiles who thought all hope had gone. God hasn't left us. God is with us, all is not lost. Now what are we to make of this vision? What is God trying to communicate through this glimpse of his glory? Well, let me share with you three things that I think we learn about God through this vision. Firstly, God is everywhere. Now, back in ancient times, people believed that the gods had their own individual territories. So their presence was localized. And so many people wrongly believed that Israel's God was only present in the temple in Jerusalem. And so sat by the Kibar Canal in in Babylonian territory, the exiles felt literally hundreds of miles away from God. But in Ezekiel 1, God shatters this thought. His chariot throne flashes to every corner of the earth at lightning speed. His dominion is the whole earth. There is nowhere that is off limits to the true God. There is no dark corner where God is not present. He's present everywhere, even in places where he is not acknowledged. Now, I saw in the news this week that Russia has enacted a law that restricts religious freedom and missionary activities. Anyone see that? You know, they may keep missionaries out, but they can't keep God out. Because there's no country, no office, no classroom, no home that can escape the presence of God. His chariot throne goes wherever he pleases. You can't escape a God this big. God is everywhere. And if you don't know God this morning, then that should sober you. But if you're a believer this morning, this should actually really comfort you. 
So God is there on those nights when your loneliness reduces you to tears. God is there as you embark on a new church plant. God is there as you receive the dreaded results from the doctor. God is there as you battle another day of dark depression. God is there as you stand at the grave of a loved one. God is there. You know, I don't know how you're doing this morning. I don't know what hardships you're currently experiencing. And maybe God feels far away. Maybe you feel spiritually exiled. But Ezekiel 1 gives you a picture of God going into exile with his people. And he's on his throne. And he's present with you. And that's good news. So God is everywhere. Secondly, God sees everything. So it makes sense that if God is everywhere, he inevitably sees everything. But this also seems to be the point of the eyes in verse 19. The eyes on the wheels. So God is not sleeping. He's not distracted on his phone. He's not turning a blind eye. No, God sees everything. He sees the atrocities we see on the news. He sees the injustices carried out each day in every place. God sees the suffering of his children. God sees it all. No suffering, no sin, no injustice goes unnoticed by this God. But that also means that he sees the links that you click on. He sees the way you treat your spouse and kids when nobody else is around. He sees the way you treat your employees. He sees your secrets. He sees into the deepest and darkest recesses of our hearts. And nothing is hidden from his blazing holy eyes. I wonder if you realize that this morning. So God is everywhere. God sees everything. And thirdly, God rules over everyone. Now, we saw this last week, but the same idea actually comes up again in this passage. So maybe God wants to remind us of this. So since Isaiah's vision, things have gotten a lot worse. From an earthly perspective, everything is chaos. The gods of Babylon seem to have won. The wicked seem to have gotten away with it. Those who did trust in God just seem like utter fools. But then the curtain is pulled back and behold, God is still sitting on his throne. He's still gloriously majestic, surrounded by brightness and fire. He's in complete control. He's still sovereign. I don't know about you, but since last week, the world seems to have gotten a lot worse, doesn't it? And maybe your life has gotten worse. But guess what? God is still on his throne. He rules over everyone. Even though from our perspective, it just might not look that way. But our perspective is so small. But God is big. He is a big king. And like all good kings, God will judge all of his enemies. There won't be one single enemy that escapes his justice. So I don't know if you noticed this, but... This idea of fire comes up seven times in this passage. And now this is interesting because fire 
is associated with judgment in the Bible. And so this tells us that God's not simply going for a spin on his chariot throne. He's not just showing off his cool rims. He's coming to judge his enemies. And nobody can escape the king who's everywhere. No one can hide from the king who sees everything. No one can defeat the divine warrior who rides around on his chariot throne. Nobody. And this should comfort us as we turn on the news and see so much senseless violence. It should comfort us as we think about all the evil that we see. On the, the evil that's been done to us and it seems like people have gotten away with it. It should encourage us as we look at a world filled with corrupt leaders, abusive cowards, and arrogant bullies. They will not get away with it. God is a holy king. But that means we need to ask ourselves, what about us? I mean, are we God's enemies? I mean, let me ask you, how do you feel about the fact that God is everywhere? That he sees everything. That he is a king. That he is your king. I mean, is that good news for you this morning? Or are there areas in your life that you just wish God didn't have access to? Maybe you're okay with a God who's present at church. After all, isn't that where he belongs? But not at work. Not at home. Maybe you don't want a God who's present 24-7. You know, you don't want a God who's involved in your decisions, your finances, your day-to-day life. Or maybe you're okay with a God that sees the good things that you do. But you don't want him to see everything. You don't want him to see your phone screen. Or the anger you have towards others. Or the envy and greed and selfishness and laziness that you keep buried in your heart. Or maybe you're happy with God being a king who judges those people. But you're not happy with a God who tells you how to live. Or tells you how to think or tells you that actually you're wrong. Maybe you're happy with a small, distant God. But a big, holy, transcendent, glorious God who exposes your smallness is not really the God you're looking for right now. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if the God that comes into your mind is small, then actually that's offensive to God. You've created an idol in your own image, and God hates idolatry. Therefore, God, this big, holy God, is your enemy. And this is the time for you, it's the time for all of us, me included, to recognize who God really is. And this glimpse of his glory should cause all of us to fall on our faces like Ezekiel and beg for mercy. To realize that he alone is worthy of all of our worship. Now as amazing as this vision is, it's actually not sufficient In fact, the climax of this vision is actually not what Ezekiel saw, but what he heard. So if you look at the end of verse 28, it's the voice 
of one speaking. It is at the peak of this mountaintop experience. In fact, it's the voice in verse 25 that silences the noise caused by the wings. And here's why this is important. Because what Ezekiel needs most, and what we need most today, is for God to speak to us. A vision of God is not enough. If we want a glimpse of God's glory, then we need to listen to his voice. That's actually one of the reasons why Ezekiel doesn't try to draw us a picture of what he saw. But instead he gives us words. The way God has primarily chosen to reveal himself in this world is not through spectacular visions, but through his word. That's why our services are designed the way they are. We want to pray God's word and sing God's word and read God's words and hear God's word because that's how God gives us a glimpse of his glory. We need a bigger view of God, a God who is present everywhere, a God who's all-seeing, a God who rules over everything. But we can only have this view of God if he speaks to us. And that means that this, most, this amazing, majestic, transcendent God is also personal. He's relational. He wants to communicate to us. Not because we're impressive, we're small. Smaller than we realize. But this infinitely big God is willing to speak to us. He's willing to get down on his knees, so to speak, and baby talk with us like a loving father to explain what he's like in words and concepts that we can understand and only if he speaks to us can we truly have a relationship with him and God has spoken in fact he's spoken in many different ways but he's spoken most clearly through his son the Lord Jesus Christ So just think of what we've learned about God from this passage. In verse 26, we see him condescending in the likeness of a man. We see him going into exile for his people. We see him coming to judge and conquer all of his enemies. Yet Jesus shows us these things far more clearly, far more gloriously. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He's literally God condescending to us as a man. And as God is holy and sinless, Jesus lived a perfectly holy and sinless life. Yet Jesus went into exile with his people. He left the glories of heaven to be crucified on a cross. And on the cross, he was judged as an enemy of God, cursed in our place. But Jesus did not stay dead because Jesus rules over everything. And so Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering all of his enemies. None of them were a match for this glorious king. And he's now sat on his throne, waiting until the day when he puts all of his enemies under his feet. So in Jesus, we truly see what God is like. Jesus gives us the most clear glimpse of God's glory.
And that's why when people saw Jesus, when they saw his glory, they hit the deck like Ezekiel. So we saw one example of this earlier when Will read for us from Revelation chapter 1. After seeing the glorified, resurrected Jesus in language similar to Ezekiel 1, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So if we want to see God's glory, we need to look at Jesus. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. And that also means that if our Jesus is small, then our God will be small too. So, as we close today, how big is your Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And we love having you with us. We enjoy having you with us. But maybe you've not really enjoyed what you've heard. You know, maybe you've not enjoyed hearing that God is everywhere, that he sees everything, that he rules over everyone, including you. And maybe you've realized today that for the first time you've realized you're his enemy and that he's bigger than you realized. Well, guess what? I have wonderful, great news for you because while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. He took the judgments, he took the exile that we deserved. And he promises to save all those who put their trust in him. So will you do that this morning? Like Ezekiel, will you fall on your face and give the Lord Jesus the worship that he alone deserves? If you've got any questions about that, then please come and speak to anyone that you've seen up here today. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to trust in this big Jesus. And Christian, how big is your Jesus this morning? Is he big enough to make you fall on your face and worship? Is he bigger than your disappointments? Is he bigger than your anxieties? Is he bigger than your guilt? Bigger than your shame? Is he bigger than that sin that you love? Is he bigger than the plans that you have for your life? Is he bigger than your hobbies, your work, your family, your comforts? Is he bigger than all your fears? Is he wise enough, loving enough, sovereign enough, holy enough, glorious enough? Because if not, and I think it probably isn't for all of us on some level, then we need another glimpse of his glory, a longer glimpse. We need to see him, God eternal, leaving his heavenly throne, to see him living the holy and sinless life that we haven't lived. To see him being betrayed and crucified for us. To see him experiencing our curse, our guilt, our shame. To see him defeating death as he rises from the grave for us. We need to see him returning in all of his glory to judge all of his and our enemies and to make everything new. This is your Jesus This is your God, and he is wonderfully, majestically, gloriously big. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God.
and you are big. You alone are worthy of all of our worship. And like Ezekiel, we fall on our faces and worship you this morning. We praise you that you reveal God to us. That you came as a man to go into exile for us, to die for us, to rise from the dead for us. And as we stand in your holy presence, we're amazed and we're changed. We praise you, Jesus, and we love you. Amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.